This is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Bridges, and we're scrutinizing our way into episode number 68. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, the tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi, this is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and I am here bringing you the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast. We had a bad cold last week, so I took last week off. I'm hoping to be back into smoothly recording podcasts every week from this point on. We have a guest podcast scheduled for later in the month, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, and I'm just, I've got tons of great stuff. I'm learning tons, and I'm learning tons mothering Sadie and my other kids, and I'm learning tons in my own studies. So I'm really looking forward to sharing all of that with you. Plus, uh, you guys are really good about sending me ideas for podcast episodes. So I have a lot of ideas lined up and just can't wait to share. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about the prenatal tests that you may encounter when you're going through your pregnancy and discuss a little bit about the pros and cons and things of each one of those. Uh, Before I jump into that, though, I wanted to let you know that the great pregnancy session is upon us. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I usually do a live class, and it's a live webinar class. So you watch via the web, but there are live slides and live me talking and live me answering Q&A questions um, on the class, and it's a six-week session. And it is devoted to healthy pregnancy. So if you've been paying attention to everything that's been going up on the blog for the past couple of weeks, we've we've been looking at all kinds of different pregnancy issues. And uh, we even did pregnancy stuff on the podcast last. So when we look at all of those issues, pregnancy and pregnancy health and that sort of thing, um, you know, It's important because that's what ultimately leads to a good birth. It helps lead us to a healthy baby. Um, And and taking pregnancy health into our own hands, it has an empowering effect upon moms. So one of the things that I've been learning about is that when a mom has a bad birth experience, or I don't really want to label a birth experience as bad or good, but because sometimes something like a necessary cesarean ends up being a good birth experience. But the difference between the two is really how uh, the woman, the mother, and the dad too, I don't want to leave you dads out, but how you perceive the birth experience. So if you really worked with your baby and you felt like you had rapport with your care provider and then it was decided at some point that a cesarean was necessary and you feel satisfied that you are part of that decision-making process, then it's likely that your birth experience was good, even if it may not have been what you ultimately had wanted for it. So I hope that that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so what I'm saying is that, and and actually that ties in really nicely with what I was going to say, because women who have that feeling during their birth experience, that they were listened to, that they were respected, that they were able to make decisions for their care during their birth, tend to be more confident as moms. And I have a feeling that that is true throughout pregnancy. So when you feel like you are more on top of your care and that you're more involved with your own care, making your own care decisions, I think that probably influences your confidence in the birthing situation. And I think it probably 
increases your confidence as a mom. And maybe especially when you think about your baby's health care and advocating for your baby, but also just in day-to-day parenting, when you were more confident and you have that foundation of confidence in pregnancy, I think it benefits your baby a lot in many, many ways, including having a more confident mama. And that that's a gift to your baby. So pregnancy is really, really important. And that's what the the great pregnancy class, I often get asked, what's the difference, Kristen, between your great pregnancy class and the mama baby birthing class? Well, of course, there's a technical difference and that great pregnancy is usually taught live and it's a webinar, whereas mama baby birthing has a couple videos in there, but most of it is not video. Most of it's audio like this podcast. But um, great pregnancy... You can listen to it on an MP3. I always give the MP3 option, but you know, if you wanted to watch the session live, then you would get to see the slides. So, I mean, that's a technical difference, but the big difference in it is that there is a little bit of overlap because part of preparing for birth is a healthy pregnancy. So, in that first week of mama baby birthing, there's some overlap, but really great pregnancy digs into what it takes to have a healthy pregnancy in much greater detail. And we also talk about what it takes to feel good during your pregnancy and how those pregnancy choices impact birth. Whereas mama baby birthing is really practical stuff to help you during the birthing process. So that's the big difference between the two. And I took some time off from doing great pregnancy live after Sadie was born. And I'm I'm still feeling a little bit like I'm in over my head. I'll be honest with you. Some people ask, how can you handle having seven kids? And some days I don't think that I handle it very well. But uh, but Sadie, she's been a little bit of an intense baby, but she's definitely starting to calm down. Um, I'm starting to feel more confident with her and and how I can help soothe her so that I can get more done. And I'm just, I'm excited about everything I'm learning. So I decided that this is the right time to do another great pregnancy session. So, I mean, you can check that out on the website. You can go to birthbabylife.com slash great pregnancy for all the details on that. Again, it's birthbabylife.com dot com slash great pregnancy and that just takes you right to the information about the class we're starting it up next week so i'll probably remind you of it one more time on next week's podcast but we're starting it up next week and i'm really looking forward to it now today we are going to talk about something that's really important to pregnancy and that is prenatal testing prenatal testing has become a huge part of prenatal care and i really feel like I don't know. I feel like our concept of what good prenatal care is, is A, making all your appointments. And we talked about some of that uh, on the last podcast episode. And the other part of it is has really become getting all of your tests done. And the theory is, is that if you don't miss an appointment, like if you drive to your appointment, and if you get all your tests done, then everything's going to be okay. You've done your prenatal care. And, and like we talked about on the podcast, like we talked about on the blog in, in a few different blog posts, and I'll link to all of those in the show notes, that's really not what it takes to have a healthy pregnancy. Those can be components of a healthy pregnancy. I especially think that if you have a care provider who is... Um, you know, who's really going to listen to you and connect with you on an emotional level. I know I, I'm not going to say 
that that shouldn't happen because I think that's really important that you should have a provider who can connect with you on emotional level childbirth pregnancy those are emotional things so I think that having a care provider that can do that is a good thing and I talked about that some on the podcast where I talked about why I or what I chose for prenatal care with Sadie and I talked about it on the blog but but the concept that that's the only thing that we do for prenatal care is go to appointments or get testing done is flawed. And so you can look at the prescription for a healthy pregnancy, which is the blog post that went up this week. I'll link to that in the show notes. And then does prenatal care really save lives? And of course, last week's podcast, we just, we want to look at this objectively and say, it does the act of driving to a care provider's office and peeing in a cup really make pregnancy healthier? No, it doesn't. And that's why, that's why I wrote prescription for a healthy pregnancy, because you need to know what does make a healthy pregnancy. So where do prenatal tests come in? I do think that a prenatal test can be valuable first, because some of them establish a baseline so that you can watch throughout pregnancy and see what's happening the rest of the way throughout your pregnancy. Um, but then they also, they can indicate that there's a problem. But uh, I'll, I'll be, you know, frank and direct about it. I think that a lot of prenatal tests are unnecessary and that they probably don't really help and maybe even harm, even if the harm is just by causing anxiety. But anyways, let's jump in and kind of go trimester by trimester and look at some of the big prenatal tests and talk about those. So the very first thing that you probably have done, uh, you might have betas done, and which tests HCG levels to monitor how a pregnancy is going. You might have that done, especially if you've had miscarriages and are worried about pregnancy, but betas are really, they're more in the realm of like fertility testing. So they're not exactly a pregnancy test to try and see if there's something going on with the pregnancy. The first testing that you'll probably have really related to the pregnancy and outside of betas is what's called a prenatal workup. And that's just having blood work done. And there are specific things that are ordered in that blood work to look at because you're pregnant. So the prenatal workup may check HCG levels. Most of the time, um, the beta check has already been done. So what do they check for? They test for STDs, which are sexually transmitted diseases. Most all of them check for HIV now. um, And it used to be that you could opt out of that, but you can't anymore. And I think that most people kind of feel like it's run of the mill. Uh, So even if you, you know, you've been with your husband or your partner and you know that both of you guys are clean, they're still going to do those. And it's just routine. It's not really saying anything about you. Uh, The other things that they'll usually test with that is iron status is always checked. They want to know what your iron status is and if you're anemic. And it... I I do think that it's useful to know right at the beginning of pregnancy, you should be aware that it's normal for iron levels to drop somewhat because your blood supply expands throughout pregnancy. And so around the 28-week mark, it's normal for for it to drop a little bit. But if your iron levels are low at the beginning of pregnancy, it's, it's definitely a good thing to know. So I think that the iron test is a good thing to have. Another thing, this is much more recent, but has gotten to be pretty standard is testing for vitamin D levels. And again, that can be good to know for reference. 
Um, and uh, the other really, really big thing that they're going to test for is your RH status. Do you have the RH factor or not? Are you RH negative? Because if you're RH negative, then that has implications for you and baby. And um, you'll be offered Rogam during pregnancy and postpartum. And we can do an entire podcast episode on that if you want to hear about it. I'm RH negative, so I'm pretty well versed in all of that, but I could end up carrying on about it for an hour, so I'll stop myself for now. But if that's something that y'all want to cover, we can do so. The other thing is infections. So they'll look at things like white blood cell count and and red blood cell count. All of that normal stuff from a workup, a blood workup will be in there. But the big highlights that they're looking for for pregnancy are going to be the RH factor and they want to know your iron status and if there's any STDs that could possibly impact baby. This it takes 4 to 5 vials of blood for them to do all this testing. So don't be surprised by that. You don't have to you don't have to watch. You get to sit down. I mean, so it's um it's not a huge deal for me, but I actually had a friend who really hated having blood drawn and she asked me to go with her and she felt pretty woozy. I feel okay as long as I don't watch and some people like to watch. So, you know, whatever works for you is okay with that, but just realize that it's, they're going to take several vials of blood. So, you know, a good, a good nurse won't take very long to do it, but she does have quite a bit to do. So, so expect that. That's the big thing that you're going to encounter in your first trimester. You may be offered a first trimester ultrasound, and we'll talk about that in a minute when we get to ultrasounds. But the next thing that you're going to see is going to come right on the cusp of the first trimester and the second trimester. And that is the... um, the quad screen or nuchal scan. Now, there is the possibility that you may be offered the CVS test, which is the chorionic villa sampling test. That test is usually done around eight or nine weeks or so. And there are newer tests that I actually think may make it less likely for that to happen. But what that test is, is similar to an amniocentesis. It is an invasive test. So when I say invasive or non-invasive, because I might say that again, invasive means that the test actually has to enter into baby's space or uh, into baby's body, your body cavity, and into baby's space. I mean, technically we could say that a blood test is entering into your body, but it's it's just hitting a vein. So it's not really going into the uterus or the womb or the cervix or anything like that. CVS and amniocentesis are invasive, so they they go into baby's space. And what the CVS does is it takes a little sample of the villi tissue that from the forming around the placenta and the baby, and it analyzes that. And it looks for much of the genetic stuff that amniocentesis looks for, and it also reveals gender. Now, those things or I think CVS is a lot of people are choosing to have a non-invasive test instead. And this test actually works by a blood test on mom. And it gives a lot of the same information. So it's not invasive to baby. There's not that risk of miscarriage. The risk of miscarriage with CVS is actually pretty high. I don't remember exactly what it is. It's a little bit higher even than it is with amniocentesis. 
Um, so a lot of people choose that. And you can actually be offered the blood tests at around the same time as the CBS would be done. So this is it, it is possible to have that offer during the first trimester. There are several different tests, and the way that they're named is based on the laboratory that does them. So the Maternity 21 is one that you may hear of. Uh, Panorama, Harmony, and Verify. Those are all brand names from the labs that hold the trademarks or whatever on those tests. One of them's Lab Cores and this, that, and the other. So those tests tell a lot of the same things. They're looking for a lot of the same markers as a CVS. Now it's looking for what's called cell-free DNA, which is uh, which is actually parts of baby that remain circulating in you know parts of baby system that remains circulating in your bloodstream and researchers believe that it's very beneficial to mother's health even decades after she bore children but uh, but that can also be used to find out things about the baby so for instance baby's gender and it can look for for status on trisomies and things like that so that may be a test that you're offered in the United States, it's still not routinely covered by insurance, and it's very expensive testing. So you may or may not have that test covered by insurance. I think it's changing as we realize the benefits of having a non-invasive test. But there is a variation of the test that can test for RH status in the baby, going back to the RH negative mom, so you would know what your baby's RH status is, and, and there's some benefit to that. I actually had that testing done with honor to find out RH status, and I, I'm glad that I had it done. It also revealed gender, and that's why I decided not to have it done with Corwin or Sadie, because I didn't I didn't want to know their genders. <laughs> I wanted to be surprised. So I, And that is purely the reason why I chose not to have it done with them. But, um, but it is, I mean, it was accurate for honor. We had her tested after, and it was very accurate. So the, the Maternity 21, Panorama, Harmony, and Verify all test. They're the same type of test, but they test for more than just the baby's RH status and the baby's gender. And they all do reveal gender. So if you were wanting to have one of these tests done and find out your baby's gender and you didn't want to have an ultrasound or something, then that would tell you what your baby's gender was. And they're very, very accurate. Not infallible, but quite accurate. Okay, the... So getting back to right there at the end of your first trimester and the beginning of the second trimester is the quad screen or nuchal scan. And it used to be called the triple screen, so you may still hear that. Um, the AFP or alpha-theta protein screen or the maternal serum screen, those are all names for this same testing. And this test is a two-part test. So they do a blood draw and they search for certain markers in the blood. And then they also do an ultrasound where they look for particular markers on baby. Um, most, most specifically, they're looking at the nuchal fold, which is the fold of skin uh, at the back of the neck. And if the nuchal fold measurement is off, then that could be a possible marker for Down syndrome um, or other trisomy issues. So they look for that. There is a rate of false positive with it, 
and it does involve ultrasound so those are some things to consider but what those are really looking for are chromosomal issues like Down syndrome or trisomy 18. They also look for neural tube defects. So should you have these tests? Uh, that's the because all of these tests, the CVS, the maternity 21 and similar tests, and the quad screen and the nuchal screen, the goal of all of these is to look for abnormalities in the baby, chromosomal abnormalities in the baby pretty much. So would you want to get one done? Some... Some families want to know, even if they wouldn't um, consider doing anything like terminating a pregnancy, some families just want to know so they can be prepared. Some families wouldn't consider a termination at all, and so they don't see any point in knowing because they'll know when the baby's born. Um, and other families, you know, termination may be something that they would consider, and that might be a motivation for having these tests done. So... It gives you information. Um, one of them involves ultrasound. And again, we'll talk about ultrasound here. But, you know, I really think that it's a personal thing. I, I don't think that any of these tests are necessary or required. Some of them provide information that could be nice to know. Are you having a boy or a girl? Is there a possibility of a chromosomal something going on? Um, what's baby's RH status? Could be useful if you're an RH negative mom. But these tests are, are tests that are optional, and they depend on you, uh, upon your family's worldview, and what you would do. So they're kind of standard in the pregnancy world, but, but I think that you can opt out of them and not feel like you're doing anything that might be possibly harmful to your baby, if that makes any sense, you know. It's not gonna. It's not gonna hurt your baby not to have these tests done, and I do think that many obstetricians and midwives do definitely still bill these as very optional. They might give you a brochure on it and say that you can decide on it, but especially like the twelve-week ultrasound is becoming more and more standard, and there may be reason to hesitate on that sort of thing. Okay, but next in line would be the amniocentesis, and usually. The amniocentesis is only given to moms who may be in a quote-unquote risk category, like an older mom might be offered it, or if the quad screen or nuchal scan came back inconclusive or with a positive and, and they want to do the amniocentesis to see if it was a false positive or what's going on. Amniocentesis can detect things like Down syndrome, cystic fibrosis, spina uh, bifida. So you wanna you wanna consider what would be my course of action if one of these things came back positive. Uh, how would that change my pregnancy experience? How would that change what I decide during my pregnancy? And would those changes warrant having the testing done? And would it warrant the anxiety that comes along with the testing? So there's a, one thing that's not talked about is that there's a lot of anxiety that comes with these prenatal tests because you're kind of on pins and needles waiting to see what's going to happen with the test. I, I had a little taste of this. We've never chosen to have any of these tests done. But I had a little taste of it with Sadie because we do have a newborn screen done. Oh, Sadie. We do have the newborn screen done for our babies. And Sadie's newborn screen was flagged for thyroid levels. 
And so we had to retest her, and the the second test came back great, uh, very much in the, within the normal range. And uh, so her first test was a false positive. But just the anxiety of waiting for them to take, they took like a week and a half after sending us this, uh, our doctor, an emergency fax saying that we had to go get her retested right away when she was like four days old. And then it took them a leisurely week and a half for them to say, oh, well, you know, by the way, her second test was really good, and I really didn't appreciate that. But, you know, so I, I got a taste of that anxiety while you sit and wait on a test result and, uh, and know that your baby's life is possibly going to be impacted uh, because congenital, congenital hypothyroidism, which is what they were testing for with Sadie, isn't a horrible thing, but it does require everyday lifelong treatment so uh, in the form of a supplement. So it was something, you know, that was possibly going to impact my child for the rest of her life. And not getting the treatment started has very bad effects on a child's growth, both uh, developmentally and physically. So it wasn't something that I wanted to joke around with. And I really felt a lot of anxiety during that period. And um, a lot of pregnant women feel very similar anxiety when they're kind of waiting on the results of these tests. So that's definitely something to think about when you consider the tests. And for many moms, you know, having the test and knowing, quote-unquote, for sure, is better than not having the test and wondering. But I've, I guess I've always felt pretty confident that my babies were going to be healthy or were going to be who they were meant to be uh, during pregnancy. So I did have some anxiety here and there, like what if I have a baby with Down syndrome or something. But it was something I was able to come to peace with. So that's just an emotional, mental component to consider. Let's talk a little bit about ultrasound now. So an anatomy scan, which is usually done, usually done 18 to 20 weeks, but anywhere between that range of 16 to 22 weeks, is considered normal. Ultrasounds are, and then of course the nuchal scan is becoming very common. Many of you may have had an early dating scan at like six weeks, then you have one at 12 weeks, then one at 18 weeks, and then often there's one around 28 weeks, and then maybe one at 36 weeks. They're just, uh, some women have a lot, even though there's really no indication for it. So let's talk about ultrasound. They're not shown to improve outcomes. And the, the only ultrasound that's shown to have an effect to the positive is ultrasound for amniocentesis. It guides the amniocentesis needle, uh, fetal transfusion, or evaluating for ect ectopic pregnancy, and then also an ultrasound if they're trying to do an external version to turn a breech baby. So those four instances are the only times the medical literature supports that ultrasound is a valuable treatment or therapy to have. Extensive trials have been done on tens of thousands of moms. They show no improvement of outcome otherwise. Uh, and the kind of a summation of the research that's a good thing to look at is Judy Sloan Cohames in Midwifery Today, issue 102. She talks about that. There are a lot of false diagnoses, so heart defects, brain defects, amniotic fluid, fetal death, etc. Um, those are all falsely diagnosed via ultrasound. Can you imagine what that would feel like? And the safety is unknown. I mean, we could, uh, talking about ultrasound is opening a huge can of worms. So I'm kind of just running through it. We can do a full podcast episode where we talk about this more in depth. 
but though ultrasound is widely used, safety is really not well established. And many studies show that there's unnatural heating and cell vibration in the fetal cells. Recent studies also show what they call quote-unquote non-reassuring results, which is kind of their way of prettying up, okay, we saw possibly bad outcomes. So there was uh, brain damage, growth restriction, and preterm birth have all possibly been linked to ultrasound in recent trials. Uh, and then vaginal ultrasounds, which is what you would have usually if you're having an ultrasound at six weeks and even sometimes at 12 weeks, they may move bad bacteria. Even, even if they put the little condom on the ultrasound probe and everything, it still can possibly move bad bacteria into the birth canal or the vagina. So that's something to consider. My advice on ultrasound, because I'm usually asked for a summary of my advice, and I think that uh, ultrasound is fun. It's fun to see your baby. It's fun to know your baby's gender. But consider the anxiety that comes with ultrasound purely on a clinical level, like, oh my gosh, they said something might be wrong with my baby. And then also on um, a level like if you're handling any gender anxiety or anything like that, if you've got anything like that on board, nothing to be ashamed of, but just know that ultrasound might might trigger that so that's something to consider so my advice is generally for moms who really want to have an ultrasound limit it to one and just have that one anatomy scan around the 18 to 20 week mark and request no Doppler use at appointments because Doppler technology is also ultrasound so ask them to use a fetoscope when they listen to your baby's heartbeat because Doppler actually concentrates the ultrasound um, it's more concentrated than the actual ultrasound probe now when you have a 30 minute scan as opposed to five minutes with a Doppler but still they say that the Doppler energy is so concentrated that that it's about equivalent to that so that's something to think about and again we can do a full podcast episode on ultrasounds now what are you going to encounter next once you get past that ultrasound? The next test that you're probably going to see is the glucose tolerance test. And it tests for gestational diabetes. There are variations of this test. So in the United States, usually you do a one-hour test. And if you fail that, you have a three-hour follow-up test. In Europe, uh, the two-hour test is a little bit more common and there's no follow-up test for that one. But basically, if you fail the two-hour test or in the United States fail the three-hour test, then you are classified as having gestational diabetes. Now, what's the problem with this testing? Well, first of all, there's the problem that is gestational diabetes really even a valid diagnosis? And like ultrasound, that could take up an entire podcast episode. But the big thing is that standards keep changing. Women in pregnancy are naturally slightly insulin-resistant. But many of the guidelines say that pregnant women should actually have lower levels, uh, lower blood glucose levels or blood sugar levels than a non-pregnant woman. And I still can't quite sort that out of my head. So it's the moving target thing really bothers me. And the fact that there are many pregnant women who naturally choose to eat a healthy whole foods diet that's lower in carbohydrate than the standard American diet. And then you have to drink this sugar bolus. I mean, it's like a little bottle of sugar water. 
and it's just horrible. And and then they're going to test to see how your body responds while your baby's, you know, going into a sugar coma. And it's not it's not natural. I think that if you're truly concerned about true diabetes, then testing after meals and upon waking first thing in the morning, so that fasting blood glucose and then the postprandial or post meal blood glucose levels over the course of two weeks and sitting down and discussing that with your midwife or doctor is a good idea or even over the course of three days. Now I've heard some midwives who will let you do like a really fruit smoothie or fruit juice or that sort of thing and that that could be an option for you too um, if you really want to have this done. Now if you're showing true signs of diabetes and we're not going to go through those right now but excessive thirst, excessive urination, all of that stuff, then certainly you want to get tested and I mean that's probably underlying diabetes that was developing before you ever got pregnant if that's the case and sometimes that can be picked up on during pregnancy but that's true diabetes which is a different animal than this fleeting gestational diabetes and I think I'm going to have a guest on where we talk a little bit more about gestational diabetes and her opinions on all of this and that'll be useful so we'll try and we'll try and get that going but that's definitely something that you may may be asked to do and again if you really feel that it's a concern then I would advocate for one of the variations of the traditional test but otherwise it's one that I personally have refused to have done because it just seems to be pointless to me but it's your choice and again we can it's one that's it's one that's opening a can of worms so it's hard to talk about in a succinct fashion so we'll come back to it in some shape or form I promise okay the next thing this isn't a test but but having rogam happens typically around this same time rogam is if you're an rh negative mom and again this could be an entire episode in and of itself but you need to decide if you want to do the if you want to do the prenatal rogam or not and i think we'll just leave that for another episode because it is so involved now while you're going to your appointments you may have had an appointment in the first trimester and had this done but while you're going to your appointments throughout the second trimester um, there is standard testing that's done at the appointments so that's um that's testing your urine and when they test urine you you pee in a cup and they dip a little urine strip and what they're usually looking for in that is glucose uh, blood sugar or sugar and protein and if you're spilling protein in the urine then that's not a good sign during pregnancy a little bit of urine spillage can be normal later or not urine spillage sorry ladies protein spillage in the urine can be normal um, in later pregnancy and then blood sugar or glucose not blood sugar I'm sorry ladies I'm hungry so my blood sugar levels are probably low and that's why I can't think anyways sugar levels in the urine that's the big things that they're looking for because that can can clue into okay maybe something's not right with a pregnant mom um, or it may clue into you had ice cream before dinner last night or maybe you're not eating well so I do think that the urine testing can be useful for you as a woman, um, as a mother, and understanding what they're looking for. Now, some of the tests test for many other things. So 
leukocytes, uh, ketones in the urine. They look for blood, possible blood in the urine, and you wouldn't be able to see. Like, your urine wouldn't look red. They're looking for, like, actual microscopic specks. Uh, but that's what they're looking for. And so seeing combinations of those things can can be red flags. So urine testing is non-invasive. Obviously, you just pee in a cup and they test it. And it can help you it can help you track how you're doing. In fact, like I talked about, I think I talked about this with when I talked about my care with Sadie, is I actually, you know, tested for myself because it's something that you can do for yourself. So it can be a nice indicator. And then the other thing that they're going to test for your blood pressure um, or test your blood pressure. This is one I said at the very beginning of the podcast, and I know we're getting long, so I'm trying to wrap it up. But the blood pressure is something that's nice to monitor throughout your pregnancy so they get a baseline for what your early pregnancy blood pressure is like it's probably pretty similar to your non-pregnant blood pressure and then they watch that a a slight blood pressure rise throughout pregnancy can be normal but if it's really skyrocketing that's not normal and you're going to want to look at lifestyle and diet and stress levels and really make sure that you're addressing those things because if it keeps going up after that that's definitely a time when you want a care provider on board helping you out Uh, they check weight and again, that's another can of worms that we can talk about. They'll test baby's heart rate. At, at this point, if you're using a Doppler, they probably start right away around 12 weeks. If you're not using a Doppler, it's probably going to be 16, 20 weeks before they're checking if they're using just a fetoscope. But they'll listen to baby's heart rate. They'll also check you for swelling. And again, this is something that you can monitor for yourself too, is assessing your swelling levels. But then the next things that you're going to see as far as outside of those standard prenatal tests are strep B test or the group strep beta strep test. It's very commonly done. Does it really make a difference or not? That's the question. Now, in gentle birth, gentle mothering, I feel like Sarah Buckley does a great, she gives a great discussion on this topic. And she also talks about gestational diabetes. So that's her book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. I'll link to it in the show notes. I highly recommend that every pregnant woman read this book. And then I have an article where I talk about group B strep extensively. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes and let you read that one to get a really thorough discussion. But group B strep is another one that I personally decline because I just don't feel that the evidence for routine testing is there. A lot of midwives, however, and we're talking even midwives, crunchy, crunchy midwives, have chosen to have their clients start doing this. And it's it's definitely something to consider. Do you want to do it or not? Um, And then read the article because the article doesn't just discuss the testing. It discusses what to do if you're worried about it or if you decline the testing and want to do something prophylactic because you've declined the testing or if you have had a positive group B strep screen, what do you do then? Other big test that you may encounter is the non-stress test and or biophysical profile. Biophysical profile kind of goes along with it. So when they do a non-stress test, two belts are placed on you. You go to labor and delivery usually for this. And they put the belts on you just like they would do if you were going in there to birth a baby. Um, And so they, they listen to how much baby's moving. They listen to baby's heart rate, and 
baby's reactivity. So how does baby respond to stimuli? So especially if the baby is sleepy, sometimes the nurses will use a little buzzer to try and wake baby up or shock baby. And basically what it's looking to, to study is baby's heart rate response, uh, or baby's heart rate, excuse me, and that rate of response to movement and activity. The biophysical profile adds an actual ultrasound into this. Now the the non-stress test portion in and of itself is using Doppler, so that is ultrasound in and of itself. But the biophysical profile also adds a, an ultrasound sonogram onto that. So you, they watch for the baby to be practicing breathing. They look at movements. They look at the muscle tone, so is baby flexing. And they look at baby's heart rate and the amount of amniotic fluid that that baby is, um, or that is around baby, and again, watching baby swallow and stuff. Do note that amniotic fluid measurement via ultrasound, like weight measurement, is not very accurate. So that's something to really keep in mind if you're considering this, or if they're talking about amniotic fluid levels being low, or anything like that. It's really very inaccurate um, at this point in pregnancy, and perhaps all throughout pregnancy then they're really not going to do any more tests. Everything else is going to be procedures or the, it's just going to be repetition, so continual non-stress tests or biophysical profiles. And so those are all the tests that you may encounter. And deciding are those things warranted or not, like the non-stress test or the biophysical profile, is that warranted or not? I think it brings peace of mind to some moms. I think it brings anxiety to some moms. So I think that you need to decide what it looks like for you. You can effectively do kit count tests on your baby at home, even frequently, and get to know your baby's patterns. And that, I mean, that's really an effective way to look at how you and baby are doing. But if, you know, if you're worried, then I would not hesitate to go in and let them know you're worried. And if they say, well, let's do an NST or a biophysical profile, then you could say, okay. So all of these tests, you need to look at the tests and weigh the pros and cons. I guess that's what my overall advice is, is not that you should or shouldn't do the tests, even though I know that I shared some of my personal choices on the podcast. But what I want you to be is informed. So you understand what these tests are for, what may be the pros and cons of these tests, what's the point of these tests. So that you get away from this picture that, okay, I'm, I'm going to go and go to the doctor and have my tests and so I'll have a healthy pregnancy. Because again, that's not what makes a healthy pregnancy. Get information on the tests so that you understand the information that they're giving. And then you decide whether you want to have the tests done or not on top of what you're going to do proactively to take care of your pregnancy. And again, I'm going to link to a bunch of articles because we've really been talking about this on the site uh, and and in the email newsletters and everything. And again, I'm running the great pregnancy session. We're going to start up next week. So registration is open now. Um, but we're going to start the great pregnancy session and you're welcome to send in on those classes. I send replays if you can't be there live. You can email me in questions beforehand if you have questions. So again, you can find out about that at birthbabylife.com slash greatpregnancy, all one word there, birthbabylife.com slash greatpregnancy. I will look forward to having you in the class and I'll look forward to talking to you next week. Have a blessed week. Thanks for listening to the Birth, Baby and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess. 
For great resources and tons more info, visit www.birthbabylife.com. Visit www.birthbabylife.com.